This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The United States ornamental fish aquaculture industry began to develop around the 1930s and 40s in West Central Florida through the efforts of a number of aquarium fish pioneers. Since then, the U.S. tropical fish industry, still centered in Florida, has grown from one to over 200 farms unified through the Florida Tropical Fish Farms Association. Hundreds of species from numerous families are cultured in ponds and tanks using many different techniques. One of these pioneering families, the Straubs, moved from Long Island, New York to begin fish farming in 1940 on the east coast of Florida. And Walter Straub, Tropical Fish Farm, still produces and sells fish today. When Walter H. Straub was growing up, he helped his father, Walter Sr., raise fish in those early days and learn to appreciate and enjoy aquarium fish farming. He learned the ropes for many years before officially taking over the business in 1974. Since the early days, Walter has watched the industry change and over the past 60 years has seen many different things occur. Join us for a journey back to early aquarium fish industry days and then a look into the industry's future from Walter's time machine. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Walter Straub, owner and operator of Walter Straub Tropical Fish Farm. Hi, Walter. Thanks again for being with us today. Oh, hello, Roy. It's nice being with you. So you've been around for quite a long time. I know not, not quite the 1800s, but almost, you know, almost the 1800s. So you've definitely seen a lot of changes and have been here in the early days of the industry, both in the U.S. and definitely in Florida. Starting with some of the things I'd really am curious about, what made your family move down from Long Island to Florida? What kind of, I guess, um, you know, profession change was this for your father? Right. Okay. Uh, well, briefly, uh, my parents were both from uh, Germany, and they they eventually uh, they came over when they were roughly eighteen and uh, met in New York and married eventually. And uh, my father was in the travel business with Cook's Tours, and of course. When the war broke out, 39-40, travel industry came to a halt. My father had always had tropical fish as a hobby, even in Germany. Uh, since the age of nine, he he uh, had aquariums and uh, and pool with fish. And in uh, in New York, the uh, the apartment, I understand, was uh, was utilized to its fullest by uh, 
almost no place to sit, just aquariums all around, and even the bathtub was used at certain times. So the opportunity, he heard of a, of a farm trying to be built here in, in Florida. So at that time, uh, as times are maybe now, for a lot of people, things looked pretty good. So uh, we all got uh, put in the Model A Ford, 1930 model, and down we came. So how long did it take you guys to drive down from from uh, Long Island? Well, I were probably about uh, six or eight flats on the way. Of course, I was only a year and a half <laughs> old, so I can't remember too much. But you know how it was in the old days. That's right. But uh, anyhow, uh, the trip was made uh, in a reasonable length of time and uh, got down here. And, of course, it's a lot different uh, then as it was than it is now. This farm, of course... We got to first describe what kind of farms we have in Florida. We got the dirt pond type farms where where basically there are ditches dug in the in the ground, and then we've got what we call an above ground concrete vat operation. And this uh, this was a totally uh, concrete above ground operation from its inception. So uh, the a lot of some quite a few pools were built at that time already. I remember there were 40, 40 uh, vats that were. 12 by 20 foot in size and uh, about 3,000 gallon capacity each, and they were they were built. And if you can imagine, they were formed and poured by uh, manual. There was no ready mix in those days, so uh, <laughs> this was quite an undertaking in those days. And plus a lot of smaller smaller pools. And uh, you know, we we started up down here. He did, I should say. I was again just just an infant. So when, um, I guess, what was your earliest memory then? You know, as you mentioned, obviously you came down pretty young. What was the, what was the earliest thing you remember about the uh, farm? Well, probably uh, mosquitoes. <laughs> it was brutal. Just survival down here was brutal. I mean, there was, there was no such thing as a mosquito control of any type. And, and the mosquitoes would just eat you up when you went outside. We're, we're kind of on the estuary here and, and in the river on the east coast. And it's... Uh, the, I mean, the fishing was great. There were a lot of mosquito wigglers, uh, good food for the fish, but very tough on humans and animals. I mean, there were, cattle were dying almost in the field, choking on the ingestion and suffocation from, from the amount of mosquitoes. You could just take them, your hands would be black. You could take a handful and swat them on the ground. They were just, just thick. So Sounds- probably, probably, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the worst things you can remember as a, as a kid. Yeah, that's true, and definitely back then, obviously, the, a lot of the luxuries we take for granted now were, uh, weren't around. Now, how many other farmers were around in that area, or do, do you recall um, when your dad was, was setting up shop? Well, there was, there was a dirt pond, in-ground pond-type uh, operation uh, going uh, about the same time. Basically, there were three sections in Florida that went into to fish farming, and that that was Miami, and of course, most of Miami at that time was the concrete operation like we have above ground because of the porous lime rock. I guess a lot of the vats in the, down there that were in the ground would not hold water, really. Then Tampa had a couple of farms, and of course, now that is the, the center of activity, the West Coast area. And uh, there were there were just the two of us originally here, and then uh, one of the Miami farmers came up here and started a small operation. Uh, and there was one in, in Sebastian, which is a little town for But they were all quite small in those days. The big farm started in Tampa later on. So what kind of fish did your family raise, and, and how did you choose those fish? Well, there weren't nearly the variety available you have today. Most that were primarily live bearers in those days, of course, all the plotties and mollies and swords and guppies. Of course, even the fancy guppies 
uh, came along later on when the Japanese, I believe, started uh, raising the first fancy guppies. This was probably late 50s, early 60s, if I'm if I'm correct on that. And of course, that was something that we got into right away then too, because they were quite valuable in those days. And uh, it's. Uh, Do you remember what the maybe the, those guppies were running for back then? Well, the uh, well. <laughs> The the fancy guppies were going for like we could get seventy five cents a piece for for fancy guppies in those days. Wow, which is yeah, that, that is that was big money in those days. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, today that's that's maybe not so much, but common guppies at that time were three cents a piece, and and your run of the mill gold guppies and and semi fancies were maybe like ten cents, which was you know. Uh, you know, it was not not that great, but when you got to cut the fish like seventy five cents, you're talking big money. And was this uh, seventy five cents to you, the farmer, or in the stores? To the farmer. To the okay. farmer. Okay. So in the stores, then, it was no, probably not, not to the crazy. not to the wholesaler to the stores. No. Right. Okay. So that's that was that was uh, very interesting. Of course, you know you have a lot of you have a lot of problems. In other words, we came down, uh, we moved down, and and we hear about. Well, I guess we were here. About three years, and uh, we we burned out. All right, fire. We had a two-story home, and the, the house and the fish house and everything burned to the ground. We had no insurance. The family had no insurance. The closest fire station was Vero Beach, which was 19 miles away. And uh, the time they got there, you know, there was just a few ashes left. And uh, so you had to start all over again. People were very helpful in those days. We had a we had a, a neighbor that had another house that, that they weren't using at the time, and, and we lived in that house probably five years, totally free of free of any charge. She gave us dishes, and people looked out for each other in those days. It was, it was a lot of, uh, it was a good America, you know? Yeah, that's definitely a, a good time, and uh, yeah. I'm sure you appreciated those folks. No kidding, and, and we always remembered, I, 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 I dissed this lady, they, were, they had a commercial grove, and as she got older in the 80s and 90s, I... I kept dissing her grow free until until she passed on, and we just you know it was just the way it should be. <laughs> yeah, we're we're there in some in uh, some places and getting there in others, and you know, but the, but that definitely was a good time. And you mentioned live bears, and I, I think you had mentioned some other fish later. How did you get into some of these other other fish you guys were breeding? All right, yeah, you know, we were we were in also of course tetras. We you know. We were raising all the the pulchers and the head and tail eyes and the glow lights and uh, rasboras, all that stuff. But of course, we didn't have very good water here. My father was actually one of the first to to raise the neon tetras that that Fred Koshu bought over. Well, the original one came on the in the Hindenburg back in whatever '34 or whatever. Okay. But uh, we became friends with with Fred Koshu in, in New York, and uh, there were not that many people in the business in those days, so everybody was friendly to other. Uh, everyone else, uh, Albert Greenberg in Tampa, was, we'd always get together. There, there was no competition. Everyone's out to help everybody else. And uh, but we, in other words, he had the good Catskill water in New York and was able to to uh, one of the first to breed the neon tetra. And of course, came down here and uh, we had hard alkaline uh, artesian well water. Uh, it was no go for for all the, the tetras. So we we eventually found. No, no suitable water on our on our property, so we had to go out and collect water, which a lot of farms did. I, I they may still do, to that matter, to, to today. And you had to collect water from from local ponds that were basically uh, slightly modified rainwater, which was quite soft, 
and, and neutral or perhaps even a little acidic, and more or less the type of water that that the uh, tetras and uh, all the South American fish, you know, required. So, uh, I mean, there were even, I, I know someone in, in, in South Florida, they built a big farm in, in a Pompano area, didn't have a proper breeding water available, and they had to uh, get a gasoline tanker truck, and the uh, water was bought in from from uh, other areas where the water was, was uh, usable. So you had a lot, definitely a lot of challenges in your right. We in Florida, our groundwater is pretty hard. <laughs> so you, got, yeah, you guys... Generally, over, yes, of course. You guys can't, overcame a lot to, uh, to get these fish in production. Now, you right. mentioned Fred, and I think when we had talked in the past, I guess he, he was one of the folks that had been doing a lot of collecting. Can you tell us a little bit about... Yeah, uh, he was a great man. I mean, he... he uh, was originally in Arsley, New York, I think, and, and that was where the home uh, where it started. And uh, him and another Jap uh, man from Japan, I think Mutsu Matsuno, I think was called Eastern Garden, if I'm not mistaken. They were big wholesalers in the New York area. But uh, Fred was always uh, like a family friend. I mean, he would be around whenever he was in the area. And he he, he settled in Ogis, Miami, for a while there in the Miami area, and then. Uh, he built a farm, a dirt farm in uh, in White City, which is around Fort Pierce here on the East Coast. And he set up a, a holding facility and distribution facility in the Vera Beach Airport. And this was, uh, I I was a teenager in high school. Uh, I got my first job with Fred. Uh, he, and this was about 1954. I was 16, and I went to work for Fred and Vera during the summer and made enough money to buy my first car. Nice. <laughs> dollar and a quarter an hour I got, but uh, it was exciting working for him because they would bring in. He had he had a fleet of planes. He had a two Lockheed Lodestars, which were twin engine planes that he used to fly down to South America to gather up all the the tetras and uh, and the cardinals and the and the neons that were coming in that area. And he would stop into Guianas and pick up all the hatchet fish, fly them into Miami to clear customs, and then land them in Vero. And I'd get a call in the middle of the night. Say, well, it's time to go to work, you know, and we come down there and unload. And that these planes were just gutted planes. But him modified, he had a couple of men crew, uh, or I should say a couple of mechanics that worked full time. They had to land down there in, in grass, on grass strips, uh, obviously, pretty rough terrain. And, and the, the tanks would always spring leaks, so that uh, you didn't want to have too big a leaks in a, in a gasoline-powered plane. So the mechanics were always full time keeping, keeping one in the air. And he even went larger than on to a PBY flying boat, which was quite a plane <laughs> that they used to land on the Amazon with that plane, pick up the fish and come back. It would land in Vero. For years, we sold exclusive to him. He would land once a month just to pick up our fish. And in those days, that was like 40, 40, 50 boxes of fish is all he could produce on our farm at that time. He would take the entire production, and, that, and then it went on for years. Even uh, then, at the end, when I even worked for him, he had the, a B-17 bomber, which he was converting, a big four-engine bomber. And it, I, it might still be in, in flight. I know it. I think that the National Geographic Society or something at one time had that plane. They were, they were flying some rare uh, animals around, the whales or what have you. And I, I think in the Tropical Fish Hobbyist magazine, I saw a reporting of that some, some years back. That was an interesting period. Uh, you'd never know what he had. He, they brought in then a lot of electric eels for university research. Uh, the piranhas, of course, were coming in. Snakes were a lot of things were coming in. But uh, it was an interesting, interesting uh, period for me. And, and of course, uh, at one time there, he said, "How would you like to take a little uh, 
milk run out to the west coast. So we, I left Vero Beach in the evening with him on one of the delivery flights, uh, just the pilot and co-pilot and myself. And we left just before uh, dark in the, in the evening. And first stop was New Orleans. Then we went to Houston, Dallas, had breakfast at Albuquerque on the Long Beach, California, then up the coast to, uh, to Oakland. And then finally spent the night at Cheyenne, and uh, then came back. Uh, that was that was the last stop on the delivery route. So he, it, it was quite a quite a thing when you think back. I mean, nowadays nobody could afford to fly an airplane and that, but uh, he did it. And uh, my job while on the flight was to make sure that the air stones were in all the uh, five-gallon uh, tin cans that they used, five-gallon gasoline cans. It's a square or rectangular five-gallon can was which was used for that type of operation. And they had a little air stone. He ran a, they ran vacuum pumps on these airplanes. They ran vacuum pumps. They used to, to uh, power the gyroscopes. They'd run them backwards, so they acted as a blower. That's your modern blower that is used in the, in the aquarium industry today to deliver air to your, you know, to your aquarium. And uh, they ran them backwards, and uh, they, they had carbon veins in them. They, they work real good, put out a lot of air, you know, without too much power necessity. So. Wow, that's incredible. I'm going to talk with you and have a couple more questions, definitely about the uh, flights and some of the shipping, but first we're going to have to take a quick break. All right. Some messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. (laughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Media on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Walter Straub, owner and president of Walter Straub Tropical Fish Farm. So, Walter, you were talking a little bit about, I guess, the aeration. So, they had blowers. They had modified blowers for keeping air stones and aeration in these tin cans. What kind of densities or what, you know, how many fish were they putting in these tin cans? And were they changing water out as well? What, what were some of the logistics involved with keeping these fish alive for these long flights? Yeah, well, there was Fred Koshy had had a couple of key men working for him in, at Vero Beach that that were your I guess you'd call them a modern uh, chemist. And there were not many medications available in those days. We used acroflavin, sulfathiazole, just a few things. And obviously, these fish, most of them or all of them, I should say, came out of the wild. All the discus, also. I I I could go on and name all the the fish, but you. Most people are aware of roughly what comes out of that area of the country, right? And they're all uh, they're all saltwater loving fish. It's not like you're talking about East Africa where you're getting into to the African cichlid type thing, which which I'm into now. 
But he was a great fish man, a man by the name of Gus Matt. He also lived in Vero, and we, we also used to socialize. Our families used to get together. Uh, but he was he was quite a guy. He would know how to bring these fish around. And uh, when he was there, they, they did, the mortality was, was really quite impressively low for what you think about, you know, how how crude it was in those days. And, of course, these little cans, they just were, a, you know, a rectangular. It looked like a bread box, right? And had a hole cut in the top and a little sliding lid to keep the fish from jumping out. And they would they would store everything in that same box. I don't you'd you'd find a snake in there. You never know when you when you unload. <laughs> there were there were hundreds of these boxes. Just had to be careful what what was in there. But uh, the air stones, you know, it, it was just as far as concentration. Again, it goes about you know what size fish we're talking about. Uh, small fish. The neons were not all that small in those days. They were fairly nice sized fish that they used to bring in. And uh, you could possibly, depending on how long the flight was, you know, maybe maybe a hundred. Uh, neons in a, in a in a can maybe it's just like shipping would be for for us in other words prior to airplane shipping we used to ship our fish by railway express people probably don't realize that but uh when we first started here our our fish would all go out by train and uh we'd uh we'd hear the train coming over the bridge and everything was ready to go we'd run up to grant which is a little town four miles north uh traveling with that old model a about as fast as the train would go get there and they would take the uh, the glue pail, slap on the, the labels and the way they would go and these fish would go up to say New York to Paramount, uh, maybe take them uh, two days to get there, but they went in heated train compartments. So there's probably no more fear of, of fish freezing in those days than there is today with, with commercial airline power. I mean, more fish freeze here in Florida at the airports than, than I, <laughs> I think they used to be when, when they went by train, but they would just go in the, in the, the typical round approximately 18 inch diameter called a german shipping can that uh was had to be returned in and it would go into a box with some shredded paper around it and uh, had a small diameter lid that goes on the top and uh, they would be reused had to be shipped back but then of course when the airplane started flying even out of vero like i know that the eastern airline was flying we were i have pictures of my father getting loading fish on a dc3 eastern airline in vero and that was back in the 48 so uh that was that made it nice when the, when the plastic bags came out and you could uh, just put the plastic bag and uh, we always ship very light water but we a firm believer in in uh, it's not the amount of water it's the depth of the water so uh, when did the plastic start replacing the the metal well, for yeah, shipping the closest, the closest I can think to is is around uh, around after the war I wish I knew I I don't I don't know I don't remember when the insulated fishing you know the styrofoam box came into existence that came a little later i remember seeing the first the first shipping boxes they made that they they were made in miami and they they would not stack so they <laughs> they took up quite a bit of room to store but that was that's a very very helpful clever thing because the problems with with shipping without the styrofoam box in those days or a tin can for instance we used to raise a lot of oscars and uh they would have different sizes going from an inch and a half up to six inch. And you try to put a six inch Oscar in a plastic bag of three mil thickness and keep him, uh, and you throw him around for a while and keep him from perforating the bag and losing water. I just, to this day, don't realize how many fish <laughs> made it and that the airline uh, passengers didn't get wet baggage from leaking bags because there was <laughs> no way to contain it. Even though you put a double bag and some newspapers between it, you know, the, the fins on those fish, especially a six-inch fish thrashing around, 
and uh, airline personnel, they're not the gentlest uh, generally. They're not trained to be that way, so that's the way it is, you know. They just throw them around like it was uh, an animate object. And, but, uh, you know, so, again, again, it was just amazing. So you mentioned a lot of different fish you, you were all raising. How did you, I guess one obvious question I've always had is, how, what did you feed them back then? I, mean, I don't assume there were a lot of these prepared diets available back in the 40s and 50s. Not really. There was, of course, uh, tetramen and a few of those uh, German foods came in. For, for the pond use, we used, basically, we made our own food. The primary ingredient was just oatmeal, grind, quick waker oats, ground up. We used to run it through a, uh, an old uh, coffee grinder that we had that we bought from, uh, like, from A&P or, or something like that, a food store. It was a coffee mill. And instead of uh, putting the beans through, we put the, the oats through. And then we cooked that on on a stove with water in a big pot. And and for the protein, the good stuff, the fish meal we used to get from Maine, they call the Maine concentrate. And that was a very rich. That was before they extracted all the fish oil and sold that separately. It used to come in hundred pound sacks, and the, the sacks would always be dripping with fish oil. <laughs> but it was it was it was outstanding food. And and believe it or not, there's something about oats. I know it's supposed to be even good for humans cholesterol-wise, but fish can almost live on that. I mean, all fish, not just, not just you know, you know, just it was just a very good food. And we, I, I used cooked food until, you know, quite recently. I would say up until even Oscars and all, we were feeding the cooked food. Uh, they learned to eat that, and uh, it's not the best. It clouds the water a little bit. Obviously, it's not good for aquarium use, but uh, commercially, uh, we did well with it. So we live with that, but of course... You know, now we got we got a lot of great foods to, to pick from, you know, pellet type, and you name it, and uh, things, things are a lot easier now. What about the really young, you know, fry or larvae? What, what were you feeding them? Brine shrimp, brine shrimp, and and egg powder, egg powder, uh, uh, just the egg yolk, I should say, not egg powder, but it's it's the egg yolk, a dried egg yolk, or you could take a, a, a cooked hard boiled egg and run it through a they find that mesh thing and then sprinkle a little in the water. Of course, all this stuff is, it's its how much you feed. You know, you got you can't spoil the water, but it is good. And then you would try to raise, for some fish, infusoria and, and rotifers. Uh, when you raise some tetras like penguins and all, penguins have a, a very tiny young, and the, the Utah egg was, was, uh, was a little too large for them to consume at first bite. So you'd have to kind of raise the San Francisco Bay brand, uh, the Bay eggs from out from 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 the San Francisco Bay, which has a, it's a little smaller, a little smaller shrimp, and you'd start them off for a couple of days on that, and then you could switch over to the to the Utah egg. So, you know, obviously you mentioned uh, fish were being transported by train, by plane to a lot of the different cities all over the U.S. How how did you, I guess, keep track? of your customers and were were the customers pretty good with you in terms of uh how the fish arrived could you could you trust them i i know that's you always want to be careful and that sort of thing (laughs) (laughs) from the business side yeah that part hasn't changed too much okay there were there were crooks then those days too uh but you had to just know who you were shipping with and uh again uh you know, uh, people like Paramount. We never, we never got burned with them, and 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 all the other customers we had, uh, they were all good. But there, you know, there are a few. You have to, you have to, 
get a feel for that. And yeah, I'm 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 just uh, when I when I hear people getting burned in businesses nowadays, and it, it, it's sad. You just uh, but sometimes I guess it's uh, desperation. But uh, if there's any doubt in my mind, I won't I won't uh, ship. And I've I've had even I had a, a a wholesaler in New York that was going under, and I wasn't aware of it. And one of his employees intercepted the shipment, sent them back to me at the airport. Called them, told them to send them back, and I. The shipment arrived that night, and I, I went to Orlando, picked them up, and uh, and at least didn't lose that shipment. That's but, good. Uh, you, we, we we don't have much trouble with uh, people that don't pay, and of course, I guess nowadays they're they're using a lot of uh, you know charge cards and this and that, which I I haven't gotten into at all. But you have to be careful. There, there are there are crooks just as in in every in every business, I guess. So you, I, I know you officially took over, even though I'm sure you were probably doing a lot of the business and of operating the facility as your your father was getting older. As you took over, were, were there any major changes? And also, how did you end up getting more into the African cichlids, which is kind of how I've known you really for the past you know many years doing African yeah. cichlid production. Yeah, well, you know, you you kind of if you get into this business, you you have to raise what what you think or you know there's a market for. And of course, markets change. Uh, one of the big, big things that hurt this business when, was when the the imports first started coming in. Uh, again, I mean, we can always compete with people in our own country here. We all have the same problems. We have to buy roughly the same food. We all have to pay our taxes for this and that and the other thing. And, and all our all our our problems are are, are universal, so to speak. But uh, when the imports came, well, we we tried uh, as a East Coast bunch. We we appointed some uh, a local farmer, small guy, to uh, to go up to Washington and try to uh, put a halt to this. This was well, my father was alive. I don't know. It was in the, in probably in the early 60s, and of course, uh, it, it was no. There was it, it did no no good whatsoever. So you had to learn to live with it, and and consequently, you're raising different fish than. Than you did then, and and I think even to, I think even today the American uh, and primarily the Florida-grown fish will will always survive, and the, the stress and so forth that, that they put on the the imports is just a little it's a little too much for for fish, and shortens the life of them, and and the people that, that get them are not all that happy. I mean, I I think through the years I've seen even change going back and. And I think that'll happen even eventually with well, just about everything we buy now. That is not nothing is made over here anymore. So, uh, but I, I think with with the fish, uh, you get a fish that hasn't been tranquilized. He hasn't been stressed by shipping and perhaps almost froze to death somewhere along the route, or he, he suffocated almost, and he's just not he's not the, the the prime thing. We've always, I mean, my father instilled in me quality, and that's how we we've, we've survived from the start. And that's the way it'll always be. And uh, when I sell a fish that goes out of here, it has to be a fish that I wouldn't mind having myself. I'm not in it for just the money, uh, because if you want to get rich, you may be in the wrong business. But uh, it, it's a hobby that kind of consumes you. <laughs> but again, quality is probably the, uh, the thing you need to, to always consider. Have a good product. No, I agree. Quality is definitely important, Walter. So yeah. given everything we've talked about and... and all those decades you've been in the industry, how, how would you say today's challenges for the industry differ or are the same as the way back when? Well, there, you know, every period has its challenges. Uh, you, you learn a few of them and, and, and you always run into new ones. Uh, 
going to have a problem down the road with uh, scarcity of water or usable water. Let's put it that way. I, I think we're going the wrong way on that as far as as, uh, as far as the future goes. I mean, we just uh, even in our county here, they just approved the county commission another 13,000 homes, and they're talking about cutting the watering down to once a week for your lawns, and people will get frustrated, and then they'll be leaving the state and and all that. But how does it affect the fish business? Uh, Hopefully not too much. We're we're all uh, using I think less water than we than we did years ago, and uh, we just have to try to to live with it. Otherwise, the regulations. Well, they we have some some pretty good people in this industry that you know the FTFFA and so forth and so on that that helps us a lot. And even uh, if we have uh, disease problems, uh, people like yourself and the and the Tropical uh, Aquaculture Laboratory is something we didn't have in those days. All the challenges then were you were on your own, and uh, so uh, that's more or less. Uh, I don't see anything uh, that way. And as far as far as the industry goes, I think uh, I think there'll always be a, a huge hobby. I, I think all this electronic stuff. Uh, I think eventually the games will wane a little more. And there's something uh, nice about having something living in an aquarium and, and of course, uh, learning how to bring that fish along. A lot of times you don't have a good experience maybe with your first outing as an aquarium owner. And, uh, you know, start a little small and say if you lose a little something, well, you can keep trying and you learn. And then pretty soon uh, as as you uh, seem to grasp uh, the knowledge of how to keep fish, uh, you'll keep going. It'll bite you pretty soon and, and it goes on. It's just like happened with my father and, uh, and myself. It's... Uh, I'm still fascinated by by fish and, and the challenges of breeding that fish, trying to, to replicate the, the conditions that that fish had it, where it lives in, in, in nature. And uh, it keeps me interested. Well, thank you very much, Walter. Unfortunately, we're out of time. You've got such All a right. great amount of knowledge and uh, wisdom. And, and over the, the years, I know have done quite a bit to help push this industry forward. Definitely want to thank you for taking your time out and also to our producers, especially Mark Winter, for making this show possible. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy, E-R-R-O-Y, at PetLifeRadio.com. That's drroy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're over in Florida, be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. And until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks and fish healthy and happy. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.